Hi there, and welcome to another Discast. It's February and it's still cold. It's getting warmer. Valentine's Day has just passed. And what? No, it's not today. I mean, it is today, but by the time they hear this, it'll be Friday, Flid. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That was was Ed McMahon chiming in here. Uh, uh, Valentine's Day is today. Happy Valentine's Day, Jill. Happy Valentine's Uh, Day. And, and we have today a wonderful guest that I've been hoping to get for a while. She's a journalist and lawyer. Her name is Jill Filipovich. She's been a columnist for The Guardian, a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, an old school blogger at Feminist back in the day. And she writes for CNN and she's written some wonderful pieces for The New York Review of books as well that wonderful magazine and she now has her own Substack. what's the Substack called jill it's just jill.substack.com if your listeners have suggestions for a title i'm open (laughs) jill.substack.com jill thanks so much for joining me i'm particularly pleased to have someone with whom i'm probably going to disagree a certain amount which is which is the goal of this and i wish i would have more conversations like that so thank you very much for being open to conversation. Tell me to start with, where did you grow up and what were your main influences as a kid or an adolescent? I grew up in Seattle with a dad who was a criminal defense attorney who's basically like Bernie Sanders in clogs and a mom who's in a clogs. nurse. <laughs> we we tease him for his clogs and his Subaru. He's, he's a real like he Pacific wears- Northwest dad. Oh my God. Sorry, dad, if oh. you're listening, I'm blowing right. him up. But a, a criminal defense lawyer who was a public defender my whole life, very committed to social justice and to fairness. And I, I think to letting the world be a very complicated place, which you know you have to do if you're defending people accused of serious crimes and a person quite committed to, I think, institutions and systems. And then my mom was a nurse, a pretty loud and proud and out there feminist. So she is definitely the source of my interest in women's rights and advocacy for women's interests. Was there anything that she talked to you about as a, as a child or that as you grew up? What was it that your mother really provided you with in terms of ideas, discourse? How did that, how did that evolve? So a lot of it was just her personality. I mean, she was definitely kind of a take-no-crap person. She was the youngest of five. Her, ma- her parents got married and my grandmother was pretty young. My grandfather was physically abusive. And then when my grandmother left him, when my mom was two, I think my mom really saw a how difficult it was to be a single mother of five in the 1950s and how so many institutions that claimed to protect women really turned their back on her. I mean, kind of most notably the church. They were a devout Catholic family. The kids were in Catholic school. And as soon as the divorce happened, the kids had to drop out of Catholic school. My grandfather was able to get remarried in the church because he got his marriage, which produced five children, annulled. So he was still in the eyes of that institution, you know, a, a good Catholic man, or as my grandmother, as a single mom, was very much, I think, badly treated. And I think that had, that had a huge influence in my mom, both, both and I think her skepticism of patriarchal institutions and also in her commitment to work. My mom worked part-time when I was a kid, but she always had a job and having her own money and her own life and sense of purpose was was really important to her. And I think something she passed down to my sister and I. 
How how Catholic was your upbringing? Or after the divorce, did you basically abandon that part of, of your life? Yeah, my mom more or less left the church after that. So my sister and I were not raised Catholic. You know, we were definitely at best twice a year Christians. And my mom for Christmas would always try to take us to a church that had a female pastor. So that, that was not any Catholic churches. Right. And of course, when you are talking with the Catholic church, you are talking about you are literally talking patriarchy. I mean, it is not, it is, it is explicit, not even implicit, right? And, and that annulment thing, man, I mean, I, I have a hard time with annulment myself as Catholic. I, I find it, well, at some level, I find it humane in a way, because sometimes marriages have been fatally compromised from the beginning. But in cases like these, it, it seems so... Uh, just so convenient to to overturn every dogma just to keep someone in the faith and their kids in the faith. It, it, I, I, I understand why your mother might have felt alienated from the church in that way. But was she previously devoted to Catholicism or in any way that committed to it? Was this a, an emotionally upsetting thing for her? I, I think most of this happened when she was a child, right? It was her mother who who was the one who was divorced and then, you know, raising my mom. Right. So no, I don't think my mom was a particular, she was a little kid, so she wasn't particularly committed. But, you know, my grandparents certainly were. My grandmother after that period was not by the time I came along. I have a strong recollection of my grandfather who, you know, because life is complicated, was a great grandfather to my sister and I, despite being a terrible, abusive husband and frankly, a pretty bad father. He was quite a committed Catholic, you know, would still go to mass every Sunday, lamented that it was no longer in Latin. But my grandmother, I think, was pretty well pushed out. And as you grew up, did you think you wanted to be a writer or, a, or a, an activist? I knew a I wanted to be a writer. Feminist? Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had a favorite aunt who, before I could write, I would dictate stories to her. So I thought I wanted to be a novelist, a storyteller. And then as I got into high school, kind of found journalism through the student newspaper, really loved that. Went to college to study journalism and politics. Went to NYU. My first day was in August of 2011, or August of 2001. So, you know, within a few weeks, we all, we all know what happened there. And so that was a pretty formative experience to be, you know, a young person in a new city on my own for the first time, have September 11th happen, and then have the Afghanistan war, and I think more profoundly, the Iraq war. And as someone who was studying journalism at the time and really thought that's what I wanted to do, I was pretty shocked and appalled at what I still see as the media's complete failure to hold the Bush administration to account, to kind of fully ask questions about what we were doing in Iraq and why. And so at that point, I pivoted and continued to study journalism, but decided I wasn't sure that I could do that job well and that I wanted to be an advocate. So I went to law school, um, assuming as many young law students do, that I would be like an international human rights lawyer. Then looked at my student loan bill and the kind of day-to-day -day reality of doing human rights work, which is important, but is more often than not researching pretty minute details of various legal procedures than it is, you know, actually doing kind of the fun stuff. So worked at a law firm for a couple of years and was writing on the side, had a sort of scaling up freelance career, and then made the decision to go full-time freelance. Through blogging mainly or, or through various freelance contracts with various outlets? 
I so I started blogging in college, joined Feminist, which was started by a woman named Lauren Bruce. Uh, I think late in college, kept it up through law school. And then that kind of parlayed itself into other freelance opportunities. So when I left my law firm, I went straight into being a columnist for The Guardian. That was kind of my first landing pad, which was wow. pretty great. That is a pretty, how did you, how did you secure The Guardian as your first? That's a, that's, how old were you? You must've been in your twenties at that point. Yeah, gosh. So this was 2012. So yeah, I was in my, in my twenties, late twenties. And look, it's not like, being a columnist for The Guardian was like a, you know, six figure a year gig, right? It was, it was a freelance columnist position. Are you kidding me? I think they were paying I me like I thought The Guardian paid royally, I guess not. <laughs> I honestly don't remember what they were paying, but it was not like pay your rent and student loans money. How did you do that? How did you pay your rent and student loans? So I saved up a bunch because I was working at a law firm. So I paid my loans pretty aggressively, although I'm still paying them down, moved into a cheaper apartment and then saved up, you know, not a huge amount of money, but enough that I could pay my rent for a year and then hustled really hard and ate a lot of peanut butter and like cans of beans, but have been really, really lucky professionally that I have managed in the past, you know, 10 years now to make it work mostly freelance. Yeah, that is, I just want to point out to listeners who aren't fully aware of the difficulties of that task, that's quite impressive in the early 21st century. It's not been the greatest time for journalists has only recently begun to sort of improve a little bit with some of the models like, like Substack. And your main emphasis really is on women's rights, women's bodily autonomy, women's rights to determine their own future and their own destinies. I want to ask you, first of all, when you look back on your lifetime, where do you think we are now compared to where we were, for example, when you were in high school? Like, do you feel that you've seen a maturation of, of women's rights and women's success in society? Or have you seen something worse? It's a tough question, because I don't think it's been a completely linear progression. I think on some scales, women are doing much better. And on others, I've been pretty disappointed to see ways in which we've been set back that I didn't and wouldn't have imagined in high school. Let's talk about the advances first, mm -hmm. in your view. How are women better off today than they were, let's say, in 1980? Let's just let's use a, I mean, I'm just trying to get a rough paradigm of like 40 years or so. Yeah. So I think that Women are better off in terms of options for building what feels like a good and meaningful life. You know, I'm in my late 30s and I don't have kids. I look around at my peer group. Many of us don't have kids by choice. And some of us don't have kids by a choice that's kind of also like a life circumstance, right? It's that we didn't find the partner we wanted and so, you know, didn't have kids because those things weren't set up. A lot of women that I know are having kids through the amazing technologies that now exist to help women have kids much later in life and are therefore able to build families with partners they found later, you know, on their own terms. There's so much more variability, I think, in, in what a good life can be, and not just how we can individually make those decisions, but how we can make them in communities of people that will provide a sense of mutual support and shared experience. And that's huge. I think that's really fantastic. And, you know, certainly for me has, has brought kind of pretty unparalleled positive outcome to my life. 
I think we're much more thoughtful now about things like sexual violence, workplace sexual harassment. You know, the Me Too movement was kind of the culmination of a lot of that. But I also think the Me Too movement was the outcome of many, many years of feminist work to broaden conversations around sex and power. And so that stuff is much better than it was when I was in high school. And when I when you look at, for example, the proportion of women in a graduating college or graduate school, women are now the clear majority of the educated elites. They are earning more than men in a whole variety of, of areas. And, and some people say at this point, in fact, that, and I, I'd like you to address it, in fact, so far as we're looking now at, at, at trends, we're seeing that men are in trouble more so than women, having difficulty holding jobs, being in the workplace, rates of depression, suicide, mental health, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think there's a point at which, is there conceptually a point at which feminism could say, you know, We've done we've done everything we can, and maybe we should think about the men at this point. Maybe maybe there are balancing factors here. Well, how would you respond to that? Yeah, so I'm guessing you're talking in part about Richard Reeves' new book, which is quite good. It's called "Of Boys and Men," where he kind of gets to the, to these issues. And I interviewed him and found uh, read his book, found it really convincing. You know, to me. The feminist movement that I, as I understand it, and that I, as I try to kind of practice my feminism, is not a zero sum movement of, now I'm going to really mix metaphors, but you know, there's a single pie and women are just trying to get a bigger piece of it. That's part of it. But it's also saying like, we can make more pies, right? There are many different ways that I think feminists are trying to build a more equal society. And, and one thing that feminists have long pointed out is that while women's roles have radically expanded, everything from how we dress, right? I'm wearing pants as, as I'm talking to you. That's not traditional feminine dress to the kinds of jobs that we go into, to the ways that in which we find purpose in our lives have all expanded into traditionally male spaces. Women have a lot more fluidity and, and I think a lot more choice. And what we haven't seen is men expand in traditionally, into traditionally female spaces and roles in the same way. So Yes, we have seen men increase the amount of childcare that they do, increase the amount of at-home labor that they do, but not nearly to the extent that women have increased our out-of-the-home labor, right? And still not nearly as much as women are doing. Um, we've seen a lot of women, you know, women like me, find purpose in life in spaces outside of child rearing, which for women has been the kind of traditional place in which we were finding finding meaning. And I don't think for men, unfortunately, that has shifted nearly as much. I think for men, meaning and purpose is still very much tied into provision for a family, into breadwinning, into respect from a partner and children. And I think because of, you know, a, a whole slew of factors, which are probably too complicated for this podcast, but you know, some cultural, many of them economic, there are a lot of men for which that's no longer kind of a, a sole route to finding that sense of meaning that, you know, women can provide for themselves. They can provide for their children. And if men aren't able to do that, then I think women want men who can offer something else. And I think a lot of men then refuse, right? They don't want to take on feminine roles of caregiving. I think a lot of men feel quite despondent when they, you know, don't have that same sense that someone needs them. And I don't really see feminists as the drivers of that, frankly. I see economic policy. And I think these frankly, kind of like old visions of masculinity that I think keep men quite hemmed in and are doing them quite a bit of harm. 
let me ask you a, a very basic question, which is you talk about economic differences and cultural differences. Are there any core biological differences between men and women that will inevitably lead them left alone, let's say in a perfect world, to have different priorities, different ideas of how to live a good life, different attitudes towards families and sex, different attitudes towards status. We do know that when we look through the data psychologically, that there are extraordinarily well-attested, considerable differences that seem to reside across generations and across cultures and that make men different than women in ways that are simply not uh, able to be expunged or removed. How And one of my frustrations, let me tell you, with contemporary feminism is its refusal to even acknowledge biology in terms of, in terms of the differences between men and women, particularly the role of hormones, the role of, of what they teach us to do as, as animals, as mammals. How would you respond to that, the, the downplaying of biology? I mean, you can take a critical gender theory course and never hear a word about testosterone or estrogen because they are utterly irrelevant to that discipline. Now, I don't think they're irrelevant to the issue of men and women, which means I find that discipline utterly esoteric in some ways and irrelevant in most, in most cases. But how would you respond to, to my concern about that, that we're missing something fundamental here between, different between men and women? Well, I mean, this was a long time ago, but I, I was a gender studies minor in college and the words testosterone and estrogen did come up. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I read those at some did you, point. Did you have any, <laughs> any, any papers discussing their effect on human behavior and why that might lead to differences between men and women? I mean, it was definitely a, a topic that, that we discussed. I can't honestly tell you 15 years ago, I wrote a paper on that, but it's something that I've certainly thought about. And it is something that feminists and gender theorists do question. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not going to speak for the whole feminist movement when I say this. I will speak for myself and say, you know, obviously, there are going to be some differences between men and women that are probably biologically driven. I think where it gets quite tricky is that it's awfully hard to suss out what is biological and what is cultural. And I think there's a huge impulse both to highlight difference and also to attribute differences solely or mostly to biology when we're actually not sure that's the case. There are some things that you, know, you point out, things that we see across time and culture, right? We see pretty clearly that the most physically aggressive people in most cultures across most of human history are young men, right? Those are people that do the most violence. They're the warriors, which doesn't mean that women aren't violent or that women don't commit acts of violence or that women haven't gone to war, you know, in contemporary and historical times. But it does mean that there does seem to be something about that category of people who exhibit that particular behavioral trait, not all of them and probably not even most of them, but enough for it to be notable. So I'm not a person who says that biology is completely meaningless. I am a person who says that I am not a evolutionary biologist. And I think in, even biologists and scientists will tell you, we don't completely know what is causal when it comes to biology and human behavior. The idea as well that there is this hard line between culture and biology, I think is quite contested. 
right? We know that if you use your body in a certain way, it's going to change your body. If boys are put on the ground when they're babies and told to crawl further and given more physical space, that's going to change the way that their bodies and brains develop compared to girls who are more likely to be held, right, and restrained. So that's not, you know, again, that's not me saying there are zero biological differences. It is to say that I personally believe that the cultural differences make a bigger deal in the aggregate. I believe that human beings are men and women are much more alike than when than we are different, which doesn't mean that the differences are wholly irrelevant, but it does mean that I think we often put put too much stock in them. When I when I watch nature documentaries about other species, and we are an animal species like mm -hmm. any other, say for example birds, and we see the male bird always leave the nest to get the food and bring it back. And the female birds sit there in the nest and take care of the eggs. And there is a kind of clear division of labor that is, that is around sex, which is actually we can trace to testosterone and estrogen in those birds too. When, I, when you look at human society and see traditionally, it's always roughly been like that too. I mean, very roughly. Why would we not consider biology to be the core driver of the differences in men and women, which can be affected at the margins and in certain ways by social structures or by social incentives and disincentives. But why wouldn't you just look at that and say, well, no, you don't watch a documentary and say, well, here the patriarchy is obviously in motion. The, the, the male birds are obviously oppressing the female birds because they have a completely different role in society and in their, in their evolutionary reproductive strategy. So why, why, why isn't biology the first thing you think of and then environment and culture come into that? Well, I'm not sure it's true. And I, I don't want to misrepresent what you said, but I'm not, I mean, it is not true that throughout the animal kingdom, you know, it is the male animals that are universally the, the aggressors, the hunters. I mean, I think even with lions, it is, right? Isn't it female true. lions yep. that do the killing? It's whoever, who, whichever of the species, and almost all have more testosterone among males. But insofar as there's more testosterone among females in a couple of species, the females are more aggressive. I mean, we just know this about testosterone. It fosters aggression, decisiveness. It fosters a whole variety of behaviors that we instantly recognize if we saw them in reality as male. And, you know, Carol Hooven has written this rather brilliant book from Harvard about the power of testosterone. I've experienced it myself because I went on testosterone therapy and was kind of just staggered by how it changes the mind and, and soul even. I just, I just feel that, let's, let's just say, could we, could we say, any, could you describe any difference between men and women in this culture right now as in some sense related to biology? Attitudes towards children, for example, rearing children. Men and women do seem to be different that way, but they do seem to be wired differently. Not that they both shouldn't take care of children, but the, but the women do seem to be more naturally disposed to that, that activity. So it's very hard to get men to be involved in kindergarten. It's very hard to get them involved in nursing. I mean, it's not hard to get women to do those things because it seems to have something intuitively connecting to their nature. Maybe it does, but also maybe little girls are handed dolls, <laughs> little boys are handed trucks. And well, actually, they, they could be handed both, and the boys generally pick the trucks, and the girls generally pick the dolls. I mean, I, look, again, I, I think it is so hard to conduct any experiments on questions like the one you're asking 
because it would be profoundly unethical to dump like a baby boy and a baby girl on an island and give them no human interaction and see what happens, right? Human beings are profoundly social animals. We don't just do what we're told, we watch, we imitate, we very much intuit the roles that our parents display, right? That our core caregivers display, that people around us display. And we do this from the time that we're born. So, you know, is it more likely that a little girl will pick up a doll and a little boy will pick up a truck? Yes. Does that tell me that that's something innate about girls versus boys? Or does that reflect back something about a culture? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I understand your when answer you see, is it probably reflects when, biology. I think it probably reflects culture, but but no one actually you, does know for sure. No, we kind of do, actually, I think. I mean, because we, when primates do the same thing. But they don't all. I mean, you know, the hunting example, you know, when you look at which animals hunt, you know, lionesses are better hunters than lions. Female bonobos kind of run the show, you know, in, in their primate communities. Part of the challenge as well of, you know, human beings even observing animals so is that- So presumably those, mm -hmm. those are reducible to biology. I would assume so. Right. And There's I- no I, culture involved. Well, I think I think with apes, there's some some degree, something yeah, a little closer to human beings, right? And you know, again, I'm not saying that biology doesn't shape and influence human culture. Of course, it does. What I am saying is that human beings, as highly intelligent, highly social creatures, who do build vastly diverse cultures all over the world, you know, that that vary quite a bit in how we interact with each other, how we rear our children, what our interpersonal relationships look like. I don't think you can make biology the sole explainer for human activity. Well, no one's doing that. <laughs> I'm not doing that either. I'm just saying it is the, the building block of human society because we are actually animals. Let me move to another question, which has become very fraught because of the debate over transgender children or children with gender dysphoria. How would you answer the question, what is a woman? The, the Matt Welch question. The Matt Welch question. I'm just, it's a, it's a good question, is it not? I mean, or maybe I could ask you, what is a man? I mean, it, it doesn't matter which one you're asking. I, I just would like to know what, how, how, are you, how, would you would, how would you respond to that question? Either what is a woman or what is a man? Because they do seem pretty fundamental definitions to, to be able to have a conversation about the sexes, right? So what is, what is your working definition? Yeah, I mean, it is a good question. You know, look, I think for the, va for the majority of people in the world, a woman is a person who is born with female sex characteristics of, you know, a, a vulva, and a man is somebody who is born with male sex characteristics of penis and testicles. I don't think, though, that just because that's true for most people in the world, that it's so important to say that we must keep people in these categories when we know that a there there's a category of people that are that are in the middle, right? That are intersex people who display characteristics of both, and then there are people for whom the assigned category doesn't fit. And you know, if somebody is assigned male at birth and that does not fit for them, and being a woman or a girl fits better. I, for me, that is really no, no skin off my nose. And I don't think it's a huge problem to broaden out the category of women to include, for the most yeah. part, people who are born with these Men. sex characteristics, but also people who identify as women. You don't think it's a problem to women. expand the definition of women to include men? 
Well, I don't believe that trans women are men, which I, you know, will, is a fundamental, I understand, difference between how we see the world. So, so actually a woman is just whoever says she is a woman. I, I know that <laughs> I see what you're like reeling me into. Well, I'm just into. trying to get to the and bottom look, of this. It is, it is really complicated. I'm not, I'm not I trying. I don't think it's complicated. I think, I think that we have two sexes. No one's ever discovered a third. There are a tiny handful of intersex people. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. You have a variety of variations on the chromosomes, which make them slightly different. No single human being has sperm and ovaries. No single human being produces testosterone and estrogen. It's a binary situation. And some people, as always happens with the churn of evolution, natural selection, they're going to be outliers. It's, it's what, that's how evolution works. They're always outliers. And that, I think that also includes gay men and women. Now, gay men, for example, are behaving allegedly in terms of their relationships with other men like women. Does that make them women? And how would you not call them women if that is how they're behaving? And do you not have a problem with the definition of women being associated with various stereotypes about women, picking dolls, for example? Well, this is, I think, an argument you hear quite a bit, right? That trans women are reinforcing a gender binary by dressing in traditionally feminine clothing. But the reality is that most cisgender women are doing the same thing, right? I have long hair. I'm wearing mascara. I do all kinds of things to my body that make me present as female and feminine, that make me look different than I would if I just existed the way that I was born into the world, right? And so the fact that trans women do that too, to me is not reinforcing a gender binary any more you know, than the rest of the world. And look, I- That's, that's, just yeah, a, just a, that's not what I meant about mm -hmm. that. What I meant is that if you observe a little boy who's behaving effeminately, who picks dolls to play with, you 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 put him in the category of possibly a, a, actually a girl because he's displaying gender non-conforming behavior, which is usually for, for certainly if he says I feel like a girl at this point in kindergarten or wherever he's put in the, the trans track is is that's the worry that people are taking traditional understandings of what traditional stereotypes of what it means to be a girl, and when see boy when they see boys behaving that way then assume that, in fact, they're not actually boys, which it seems to me to be a little reactionary. It seems to me yeah, to and be to preventing the extent that that's boys happening, from that's a problem. You know, and I, look, I agree. I think if a, if a boy is playing with a doll... A, yeah, how, they, do, how else do they determine whether someone is a, a girl or a boy? Because as you, as, you, as you said, you, you, can't, you can no longer rely upon biology. Well, I, look, I, I, among the trans folks who I've had these conversations with, what they tell me is that this is a persistent sense of an incongruity between how the world sees them and how they see themselves. It's not the same thing as I wanted to play with dolls and my dad kept making me play with trucks, right? It was something much deeper and more profound than that. And look, I think that can be a tough thing, you know, for People like me, who is assigned female at birth, still identifies as a woman. That, that feels very integrated and natural and part of who I am. But if it felt disintegrated, if if I felt really like my, you know, the inside didn't match the outside to use like a 
pretty simplistic way of putting it, I think that would be tremendously distressing. And I frankly don't see how it would really make the world worse in any way if I lived my life presenting as a man. And that is you know, kind of to me what a, a lot of the core of the trans debate comes down to, which is it's okay to not understand something. It's okay to think that the way someone is living their life is out of line with maybe what you believe to be true. But for the most part, you know, A, is is the panic about it really proportionate <laughs> to the problem? Well, that, and, that may be, and how, absolutely. And, you know, and how, I understand, I think it gets a little more complicated when we get into the stuff about kids, but when, when we're talking about adults, does it really cost you anything to mind your own business <laughs> when it comes to no, other and adults? No, I think that's, not what we're, that's really not what we're saying. I think most people are fine with minding their own business. And, and the vast majority of people say, whatever adults want to, want to present as and be legally represented as is their choice. And I, 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 don't, I mean, I certainly don't disagree with that at all, but I do think there is an underlying philosophical question here, which nonetheless is important for our society and is important for the protection of women and girls and the dignity of men and boys, that, that the differences between the two sexes be clearly acknowledged and then complicated because it, is, it does get complicated. But for example, a, a, we, we know this, that a human can tell whether a person is biologically male or female by looking at their face for less than a millisecond. Because we are programmed as animals to determine which of sexes are, are we are. And that's what the testosterone will do. It changes the shape of your face. It changes the face, the shape of your bodies. It changes so that you can instantly recognize as a mammal who the opposite sex is so that the reproductive strategy of your species can actually work and so you don't actually die out entirely. So in fact, it's very deeply wired, very deeply wired. And I don't see why you can't acknowledge the deep wideness of it while also allowing some exceptions for people who, whose, whose brains are telling them they're one sex and whose bodies are telling us they're the other thing. Absolutely. The question is whether children are able to make these kind of decisions even before they've hit puberty, which is, which is a whole other, just a completely different question. But I hope, we, do, you, do you see why many feminists think this is incredibly important, that if you do not define women by their biology, you can actually completely undermine the very concept of woman? Of course. And, you know, I think what, Many feminists would say, and I, I would ag agree to a, a large but not universal extent, is that biology has been a one primary way in which women have been oppressed throughout history, right? I mean, we see it now in the US of people trying to, not trying to, taking away the right to abortion, which does impact trans and non-binary people, but overwhelmingly impacts cisgender women. Many of the ways in which that women, many of the ways in which women have been pushed into or assumed to do or often kind of legally compelled to do the roles of parenting to the exclusion of paid work, housekeeping to the exclusion of paid work. Much of that does stem from the biological ability to have children and a kind of social desire for, for women to have children and also for men to have economic economic power and opportunity. And women's, women's desire to have children. 
Sure. Yeah, of course. But I, I don't think for the it's most part, an important point. <laughs> yeah. But I think, but I think women, you know, have kind of <laughs> like men have wanted to have both right. Men also have children, but they have not been consigned to the same roles that women have. Because, um, presume, because no man has to be there for nine months while his body is transformed with another being inside of it with all and then the consequences of that then the, the necessity of taking care of the child immediately after birth all the things the physical emotional psychological experiences of pregnancy which i can't even begin to imagine makes that experience uniquely female right and and couldn't possibly be available to a man with all the pluses and minuses of that experience so this isn't culture determining this. This is biology determining it. Well, I mean, it's and then culture determines how we construct around that biology, right? Sure. You know, but the reality is that women are more than half of human society. And so the fact yeah. that we've constructed our workplaces, for example, around an assumption that workers don't get pregnant, that, that's, a, that's a cultural choice. That isn't a mm -hmm. biological choice, right? And that's something women and feminists have very much pushed back against. You know, it is quite possible for women to bear children and also, you know, do a million other things with their lives, you know, work for pay, all of that. We've, we have made cultural and political choices not to accommodate that particularly well and to make the default body, the default worker, um, you know, again, that's a choice. That's, that's not a biological reality or necessity. Well, mostly. Mostly you're right. But at some point, there is some biological fact in that women bear the physical ordeal of reproducing the next generation in ways that men simply do not, in the same way that male sexuality is going to be very differently constructed because essentially it's built through natural selection for a quickie. And women having to deal with the consequences of that quickie have to be a lot pickier about their mates in case they get landed with someone who really couldn't give a shit about the kids. And so that's always been, that's also been built into our long history as a species. So, so, I mean, and I maybe, agree with you. There's also some interesting research on sperm selection, isn't there? That some would argue that actually women are also primed to have multiple partners because then the sperm compete for each other and the smart, the, the fastest, strongest one gets the egg, right? Yes, so that's there's, also there's true. But it's also, <laughs> but it's also true that by and large, what the evolutionary biology says basically is that there is a common interest that the child or the baby be brought up in a stable environment so that their genes can also be propelled. So in fact, it's in the, to the advantage of men and women to have some kind of mainly monogamous structure. And that's roughly what, what, what Dan Savage calls monogamish, which has been actually the model through time and space. But I agree with you. I think there should be much better parental leave. For example, there should be childbearing leave. There, there should be much more ability for women to be able to have children and continue in their work environment. I believe in equalizing that by, which means having to make extra efforts for women because they're the ones with the extra biological charge, it seems to me. But equally, I would say in cases like custody of children, currently the law is overwhelmingly in favor of mothers having custody of children and fathers have a hell of a time what Getting in the access. law? That's actually not, but that's not true. I mean, that may be how it kind of plays out in courts, but the laws on custody is gender neutral. 
I don't think you'll find that's the case. It is, it is about who, the best interest of the child, which is always assumed to be the mother. The mother's custody comes first. Right. But the, but the law on its face, maybe we're talking past but each other. But you would like to get rid the, of that presumption. There is not a, as far as I know, and look, I'm not a child custody lawyer, but as far as I know, the legal standard in, in most places is that the best interest of the child should dictate custody. If And that's almost always understood to be the mother's access comes first. But that's not necessarily. That doesn't mean that that's you a be law. That, that you means be that, that no. I mean, what I I'm not. A, I I am for the current legal standard, which is you got to put the best interest of the child first. And judges and folks who advocate for children are then looking at what's the whole family dynamic. And if the reality of the whole family dynamic is that the father is absent or abusive or is not the primary caregiver for the children, then I understand where courts and judges get to the conclusion that it is in the best interest of the child to keep them with their primary caregiver. I don't think that that reflects a inequity in the law. I think it reflects an existing cultural and familial imbalance. I don't think that's the law discriminating against men. The law on its face is, in fact, gender neutral. If it's being interpreted in a way that reflects back at us existing gender inequities, I, I don't find that that surprising. What does it feel like to be a woman? I mean, one of the things that comes up in the trans debate, which is kind of interesting in terms of of, of, of what it is to be a man and be a woman, because it's, a, it's actually a question I never really confronted in myself. Why do I identify as a man? Well, because I've never identified as anything else. I, if, I were to, if I were asked to explain <clears throat> why I identify as a man, I'd be very hard put, except to come up with a variety of stereotypes, which might actually be accurate with respect to men in general. How, and, and, and I would think the same with women, which again comes down to this question of whether you define us biologically or not. But do you tell me how what is what is being a woman how is being a woman different than being a man? It's a good question and you're right that it is something that you know most folks who aren't trans don't ever really don't ever think about or have to think about. You know and I when I think about myself most of what comes up doesn't fit a lot of traditional feminine stereotypes. You know, I think about myself as someone who's ambitious and a bit loud and aggressive and, you know, not someone for whom, you know, the universe of, of feminine stuff really fits very well, you know, and yet I feel quite comfortable and at home in my identity as a woman. And maybe part of that is that so much of my activism and politics has been around women's rights and, you know, expanding out the idea of what women can be so that women like me fit, you know, but what, what makes me a woman, it's, it's such an intuitive sense that I have of myself that I guess I, I also trust other, other people to understand that intuitive sense of themselves. And if a trans woman says, I, I have this intuitive sense of myself as a woman, and that's how I want to live, I respect that the same way that I assume she respects that of me. Right. Let's, I wonder one of, the, one of the aspects that I'm also kind of aware of as a, as a gay man is, is if I look at the subcultures of, of gay men, 
And then I look at the subcultures of lesbians. It would be quite hard to find two communities more different in terms of how they live, how they construct their days, what they do socially, the nature of their relationships. Does that suggest to you, as it suggests to me, that in fact, because lesbians and gay men are not constrained in the way that straight people are by the attitudes of the other sex to who they're supposed to be. Does that not seem to you to suggest that, in fact, if men were left on their own in a certain way and women were left on their own in a certain way within their own culture, there would naturally be differences, quite serious, big differences between the two? I mean, I guess I'm not... I think there, of course, are different stereotypes around how gay men live versus how lesbians live. You know, I'm not sure in in the year 2023, in reality, those communities are kind of quite as binary as you're suggesting. I, I think we are luckily in a time where it is more acceptable than ever to be gay or lesbian. Still, in a lot of cultures in the US, very unacceptable and very marginalized. But I think it is as it has become more acceptable, we are seeing those subcultures be less and less, I don't want to say resonant, but kind of less and less that sort of total some way of how you can live your life in you know, New York or San Francisco. And I think you see a lot of gay men and lesbians who are whose lives very much don't reflect the kind of traditional stereotypes. And I think as so why didn't we have a monkeypox epidemic among lesbians? I mean, I don't know. Straight people have a lot of sex, too. Why didn't we have it among straight people, right? Well, College students. don't have anywhere near as much sex as gay men do, or in as much volume or as, and in as much frequency. Pretty simple epidemiologically, which seems to suggest that men want to have more sex more often than women do, which I think is true, biologically speaking. Not culturally, biologically speaking, which helps the, the, the mismatch. That may be and maybe if women had as many orgasms as men having sex with men, we'd want more sex. But lesbians have, have more orgasms than straight women, right? So I don't know. I'm not sure we have evidence of that. What I think we do. What I, I hear there, more colloquially is... interesting uh, studies on how often individuals orgasm. And you know, men certainly do much better than women, but lesbians do better than straight women. Really? Despite all the talk of lesbian bed death and all the rest of it, <laughs> essentially, it sort of comes undone pretty, pretty quickly. But it seems to me, in fact, and I'll posit this to you, that as we've gained equality between lesbians and gay men, as in fact, we have less in common by virtue of our mutual, quote unquote, oppression, we've actually becoming more different. As you find in Scandinavian countries that they've done serious studies on, they find that the countries with greater formal gender equality, equality of opportunity, actually turn out to have a greater variety of choices. And women in those countries tend to pick more feminine than they do in society, more feminine, quote unquote, ways of, of earning a living than those who are in more inegalitarian societies, as if, as if you have real equality, then men and women will pick what they really want to do. And what they really want to do with their lives are very different one from another. They just are. So that with more equality, we're going to have more sexual difference, not less. That's, that's, that's what these studies are suggesting. Well, then I'd say we should try out full equality and see what happens. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, do too. I haven't read those studies, so I, I cannot speak to those. But it's um, a fascinating paradox that the more equality you, you create, the more difference will actually occur. So that in, in for example, in, in poorer developing countries, 
where industry and labor and all the rest of it is so much more vital. Women have to work in a way that men have to work. Their, their, their choices of, of jobs are very similar to men. But when they have more freedom to pick and choose what they want to do, you'll find that they go into various professions that seem to be more generally speaking about dealing with people as opposed to men who seem to be more, more predisposed to dealing with things. And that's the general distinction. And the, in social science, there is no dispute about that dramatic divide between men and women about the kinds of professions and jobs they want to do. So that's interesting. I mean, I guess I, I, what I would say, again, having not read the study that you're referencing, is that this idea that certain jobs are masculine and feminine I think does kind of fall apart at some at some point when jobs become female dominated and they then get reclassified as female jobs, right? We start to see them as feminized. Status and pay decreases and we see that we see that feminization scale up. Secretary work is a really good example of this that was a male dominated occupation until very, very quickly it wasn't. And as it became female dominated, it became a less high status job and a, and a more poorly paid job. You know, your distinction between people jobs and, and things jobs, you know, doesn't, to me, just kind of on its face, quite hold up when you think about things like politics, which is a job that men dominate all around the world and, and long have, you know, jobs that come with a tremendous amount of power and status, being a CEO of a company being a partner at a law firm. You know, these are all people jobs, not thing jobs that remain quite male dominated and that we code as male because they're power jobs. And I do think you see a shift in even understanding what's a female versus a male job simply by virtue of more women going into that role, at which point it gets redefined. So I think that just kind of complicates this thesis that, you know, women want one thing and men want another thing. Do you really think that as many men will go into nursing or home care help as women at any, in any society, in any culture, any time? I mean, I wish they would. You know, home, home health care work is physically intensive work. You are lifting people up. You are carrying them. You know, having, having upper body strength would be hugely helpful. You know, I do think that men are just as capable at being caring and compassionate and doing care work as as women are just as i think women are just as capable as men you know of doing do the work want of to? politics and aggression do they want to that's my question but do they really want to no i don't think it, they do and then the question is why and yeah. so yeah and you know I, I understand that you would say that's because of men's nature you know well, i think that's because of nurture i think basically it's both <laughs> but i think i think both of us agree it's both but i think we disagree on the balance between the two. And I tend to be more of a believer that we have slightly ignored or overlooked or downplayed biology in favor of culture and that, and that you think the opposite. But I don't think any serious person denies that both are involved in this and is, as in most human activities. We, have, we are animals, but we're also animals with big, big social brains. And so we have this combination of biology and culture constantly interacting with each other that makes things. But I, what, I, what I'm talking about really is taking some big step back and saying, eh, I don't think, for example, if a society, here's, here's a good question. When would, when, would the, when would feminism have succeeded? What, by what criteria could you say we're done now? That, that in fact, we've achieved equality. What, what would be, how could you test that proposition? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think for me, it would be a society where men are not the kind of default actor, where our institutions, laws, cultural norms are built as much around women as they are men. And that is definitely not the society we're living in right now. Give me an example of, of what is existing now that would be different if that were the case, just uh, just give me, just concretize this for me. Yeah, I mean, we would not be debating abortion. We would not, that would not be an argument over whether or not women can plan their pregnancies and end their pregnancies. That would not be this hugely salient, you know, political issue that is, I think, very much a, a stand-in for a whole series of traditionalist beliefs around gender roles. That would be a big one. We wouldn't be debating around, you know, things like parental leave and, you know, maternity leave in particular. We wouldn't see these, I think, huge differences in what women say they want their lives to look like and then what they actually end up achieving. There would be no debate if every woman agreed with you. Of but course, because not every but woman's a feminist don't. and not every not every woman has the interest no, 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 you know, the, of the women key... in, in a whole in mind. Well, but let's 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 I mean, get women, to the abortion question, because that's led the fight against the right for women's suffrage. There have always been women who have been out front against feminist movements. Right. And they are still a very pro- significant proportion of the pro-life movement are women. What do you think is motivating them? I think it's the same thing that motivates Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's DishCast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.